Gorman Limit, episode number two, and I am your host, Neil Gorman. And on today's podcast, what I want to do is I want to talk about some questions, some questions that I get asked on a fairly regular basis. Give you a little bit of context about how these questions get asked. You know, I teach in a university, and whenever I start a class, one of the things that I do is I go around the room and I have every student tell me the name that they would like to be called because sometimes that is different than the name that I have like on my official records or something. I ask them to tell me something about themselves that, and tell the rest of the group by proxy something about themselves that they think would be good for us to know. And I have everybody ask at least one question. Right, it could be a question about the book that we're using in that class, about the syllabus, about the class itself, any aspect of the class. It could be about me. It could be about social work in general. It could be about life. There's no bad questions, I say. Just ask some kind of a question. And there are certain questions that I've been asked repeatedly. I've been asked these kinds of questions again and again and again and again. And because I've been asked them again and again, I've answered them again and again. There are some questions that I've answered again and again, and my answers have changed, kind of depending on the circumstances of when those questions are asked. But there are other questions that I notice uh, I've had a really consistent answer for. And today, in this episode of The Gorman Limit, what I want to do is I want to talk about those questions, just a few of them, a few of those questions that I get asked on a regular basis, several times a year. And my answer remains pretty much the same every time I get asked. So that's what we're going to do. Stick around. So before I get into the first question, what I want to do is give you a little bit of context and kind of describe the setting within which these questions are usually asked. I teach in a school of social work, and the program that I teach in is a very clinically based program. And I say that because social workers do all sorts of different things out in the world. There are some social workers who do things where they're kind of like trying to create social policy, very big picture, very macro level sorts of things. And there are social workers who engage in doing kinds of psychotherapy with individuals, couples, families, that sort of thing. And the school that I teach in tends to focus more on the latter. It's not that it doesn't focus at all on the former. We do have classes that pertain to macro level social work. But generally speaking, the majority of our classes have to do with clinical practices. So in the classes that I teach, I have students who are looking to get a kind of how to be a clinician in a very general mental health sort of way. And that's in the more kind of like required classes that I teach the core curriculum kinds of things. And I also get students who are looking at focusing on a practice which is very psychoanalytic. That tends to be the area that 
orients a ton of my clinical work and my own academic work too. So when I get to teach electives, the electives that I teach are focused on psychoanalytic styles of clinical work. But I will occasionally also teach classes that have to do with sort of the the big picture stuff, that big macro level stuff as well. And one of the questions that I get asked in almost all the classes that I teach really early on is what kind of advice would I give people who are just starting out as clinicians, who are just kind of going into the world, trying to do good things and good stuff. And I've noticed that for the past several years now, my answer to that question has become fairly consistent. There are a couple of different things that I believe are really important. And I use these three things to give what I think of as some very general advice to people who are just getting started out as clinicians. The first piece of advice that I have is to really do everything that you can to remain curious about the people who you work with, whoever those people are. Be curious about them. Now, when I say that, that might sound kind of like an obvious thing, you know, something that maybe I shouldn't even bother saying because, of course, people would do that. However, I've discovered that that's not actually the case. A lot of times what ends up happening, I think, to people when they get started in a clinical career is that they're less apt to be curious about the people who they're working with because they, they go into the field and they're worried that if they do not appear as if they know lots of things, as if they have lots of answers, as if they've got their job really figured out, then people will look at them and think they don't know what they're doing or think that uh, there's somebody else out there who would be better than they are. And as a result, there's this kind of like, I think, unconscious desire on the part of many people getting started out to kind of like very quickly figure out what it is that might be going wrong in a person's life or in a, a couple's relationship or within a family system or something like that. And to once they figure out what that thing is very quickly, say, I know what your problem is and here is your solution, you know, and to toss a solution out there for them. That's not being curious. That's having an answer. And I think that those are very different things. There's a psychoanalytic thinker named Wilford Bion who wrote this really wonderful thing called, uh, I might get the, the title a little bit wrong here, but I think it was Working Without Memory or Desire. I don't have it in front of me right now, so I'm sorry if I'm saying the title wrong. And in that piece, one of the things that he encouraged people who were doing clinical work to do is to approach every single session they have with somebody as the very first and the very last session that they will ever have with that person. Because it actually is the very first and the very last session that you'll ever have with that person. Now, when I say that, sometimes people think that's sort of silly. You know, if you, you, if you saw a person, you know, week one, week two, week three, when they show up week four, you're having your fourth session with that person, not the first session with that person. Beyon and me would disagree with that. And we would say that the person who you had a session with in session number one was a certain version of that person and the you were a certain version of you too. 
And then when you had session two, you were actually different people. You were different, more updated, more experienced versions of yourselves. And then when you had session three, yet again, now you were another version of yourself and they were another version of themselves. Now when you're coming to session number four, again, you're a different version of you. They are a different version of them. You're meeting this version of that person for the first time and they are working with this version of you for the first time. A lot of things can happen in your life and in their life in between sessions. And you don't know what those things are. So instead of, Beyond would say, instead of treating the person who was there, you know, in session number one or last week or whatever, what you want to do is be really curious about, you know, who is this person sitting in front of me this time? What are they bringing to this session today? Maybe it's very similar to what they brought last time, but maybe it isn't. Maybe it's very different. And it's a good idea to instead of assuming that we know why a person is coming in, what their problems are, what it is that makes them feel scared or anxious or something, to in fact assume that we don't know. If we assume that we don't know who this person is now and why they're here today, then that can help keep us really curious. And when we are curious, one of the effects of being curious is that we stop believing that we know the answer to a problem We might even stop believing that we know what the problem is. And instead of thinking that we know what the problem is and that we know what the answer is, we start asking ourselves, what is the problem? And that's a better starting place because even if somebody comes in and right away from session one, they they say very clearly, I'm here for this reason. I'm here because uh, I'm really stressed out and I want to be less stressed out. Or I'm here because I'm working a lot and working a lot is having a really negative impact on my relationships with my family. Somebody can say something like that or some other very clear problem statement early on in a clinical sort of relationship. But that doesn't mean that that's actually really why they're there. That might be a part of it and it might not be. The only way to find out why a person has come in and what it is that you might be able to help them with is to remain curious about why they're there as opposed to assuming that you know why they're there. As soon as you start thinking that you know why they're there, that's when you stop being curious. That's when you stop asking questions. That's when you you start doing things that are more goal and objective directive as opposed to being open to whatever it is that might be really important right now. And so I think along with beyond, that one of the best things we can do for our patients and for the clinical work that we do is to be as curious as we can. So beyond said the best way to do that was to approach each session without memory or desire. When he talks about not having memory, what he means basically is don't assume that the person who was here last session or is the the person who's here for this session. Assume that it's a new version of this person who might have new things that have happened to them and, and new problems, new realizations, et cetera. Uh, and that, that, I think that's a really good idea. So for example, I remember one time working with somebody and they came in with a certain problem and they, they talked about that problem in session one, session two, session three, session four, so on and so forth. And then at, at a certain point, they lost their job. Now when they lost their job, all of a sudden, the focus of the therapeutic work that we were doing changed because this person's circumstances had changed. You know, why did they lose their job, um, for instance, became an, an interesting question that we might want to engage in. 
at that point. We weren't talking about that before because there was no need to. The person had a job, so why would we talk about not having a job? The person had one. We would make no sense to talk about that. But then when they lost their job, it made sense to kind of pause what we had been talking about, what we had been, uh, air quotes, working on or working through, and to open up this new thing that was very much the problem now, ultimately. Uh, So that's talking about not working with memory. Not working with desire is also very important. Uh, My read of what Beyond said is that when we have desires uh, as clinicians, a lot of times our desire is to make something happen. Uh, So for example, make somebody feel better, make somebody experience less anxiety, make somebody have less sadness or feelings of depression, those sorts of things. And the, the problem with that is that if we have too strong a desire, we can that can kind of like distract us and make us in a way less curious because we're, we're really interested in pursuing our desire. We're really interested in achieving some objective. And if we get over-invested in that, overly interested in that, what can happen is that we, we stop tuning into some of the things that might be important now because we have this thing that we want to do. We have this thing we want to accomplish. Um, and that maybe a way I could say this is that, you know, goals and objectives can be good for certain things in our lives. However, they can also eclipse other things. We can become too fixated, too interested, too focused on goals and objectives. And when that happens, it closes us off to being curious about certain things that are happening around us because we don't have the bandwidth to pay attention to them because we're, we have so much of that bandwidth invested in paying attention to what it is that we want to do, where we want to get, what we want to have happen, that we can figure out that something really interesting is just kind of like uh, over here on the side of the road. We're so focused on getting from point A to point B that we don't even recognize this really interesting, potentially useful and transformative thing that's just on the side of the road that we're driving down. So that's my first piece of advice. Be curious. So this brings me to my second piece of advice, which is don't lie. Now, when I say that, again, it seems to me possible that a lot of people who hear this are going to think, well, duh, that's so obvious. Why would this dude making this podcast thing even think to say that it's so obvious that people who want to be, you know, mental health people who want to be clinicians shouldn't lie. That's basic. But here's the thing. As I mentioned a couple minutes back, my way of looking at people, at the world, at clinical practice is through the lens of psychoanalysis. And psychoanalysis has taught me a lot of things about myself and about people in general. One of the things that psychoanalysis has taught me is that, you know, everybody, me, you, everybody we know, we all have a story that we tell ourselves about ourselves, uh, a story that we kind of uh, present and perform for other people. 
all the time. We might call this story an identity or a personality. That'd be two things that, that we could use to describe it. And for the most part, you know, you, me, and all the people we know, we want our story, our identity, our personality to be uh, that of a good person, a, a nice person, the kind of person who does good things and avoids doing bad things. And, you know, for the most part, I hope that's probably, generally speaking, true. But here's the thing. And again, this is a psychoanalytic way of looking at stuff. All of us, you, me, and all the people we know, we're more complicated. All of us have repressed stuff. And repressed stuff is interesting. Repressed stuff is uh, could be a lot of different things. But one of the things that we all repress to some degree or another are wishes or desires that we have, but we don't want to know that we have them. Because if we knew that we had these desires, it would make it more difficult for us to go about presenting ourselves as uh, good, competent, confident, nice people. Now, one of the desires that I think pretty much everybody represses at some point in their lives, and this starts kind of when we're young, I think, is a desire to be approved of, to be liked by other people. I say it, it gets repressed starting at an early age because I've done a lot of work with kids and with teenagers, and I can't tell you how many times I've had a kid or a teenager tell me, I don't care what so-and-so thinks of me. Every time a kid says that, or an adult for that matter, says that, it's a dead giveaway that they in fact care very much about what that other person thinks about them. They care a lot. And they're covering that over with this really performative kind of disingenuous way of saying that they don't care. When people don't care about what somebody else thinks about them, they just don't say anything about it. They just go on not caring. Uh, if somebody, you know, says unprompted by anything, I don't care what so-and-so thinks of me. That's just, like I said, it's a dead giveaway that they do care. It's also a dead giveaway of a larger desire, and that's a desire to be liked by other people, to be approved of by other people, to be seen by other people as knowledgeable, confident, competent, etc. We all generally have a pretty hard time, I guess, accepting and acknowledging just how much we want to be liked by other people. Because if we were to acknowledge that, we would need to simultaneously acknowledge just how insecure we are. And no one likes doing that. No one likes acknowledging their own insecurity. It's not fun. So let's bring this back to mental health professionals. Let's bring this back to clinicians for a minute here. It seems to me that when I was a younger clinician, I would lie. Now, I wouldn't, you know, deliberately lie, but I would lie. Let me explain that a little bit here. When I was a young clinician, I wanted my patients, I wanted my supervisors and the people who are more experienced than me to look at me as the sort of person who was able to do the job that I was trying to do. I wanted them to see me as somebody who they could rely on, somebody who they could trust, somebody who knew things and could do stuff with the things that I knew. I wanted them to see me that way. In a word, I wanted them to see me as a competent professional. I guess that's two words. I wanted them to see me as a competent professional. 
because I want, and I see, I, I, of course I knew that, but I didn't like think about that a lot. It wasn't in the forefront of my conscious mind. It was more kind of in the background somewhere that I wanted this. If you would have asked me at the time, if I wanted that, I don't know what I would have answered, but my, my guess is that my answer probably would have been like, well, of course I want people to see me that way because I am that way. When the reality was that I was young and inexperienced and really had a ton of learning still to do. I just didn't want to acknowledge that and I didn't want other people to see me that way either. And because I had this desire to be seen as you know good at my job, I would lie. And the lies would usually be things like this. Um, I would attempt to appear as if I was more knowledgeable about psychological theory or about a specific intervention or about a particular program that existed somewhere in the world than I actually was. And I would do that by, you know, trying, I'd, I'd read a little bit of stuff and then I would try to take the little bit that I'd read and pass myself off as somebody who had read a lot more than I had. I would, uh, listen to somebody else who I respected talk about somebody and then I would, you know, uh, like, or talk about a theory or something like that, talk about a uh, clinician who had written a book. Then I'd go and I'd kind of try to do the, um, you know, power skim of that thing and then go back and talk to that person as if I had actually, you know, read the thing in depth when I hadn't. I would do stuff like that. And, uh, you know, sometimes people would ask me about, uh, programs. So like I was working, my first job in the field was working at a substance abuse treatment center. And, you know, people would sometimes ask me about other kinds of social service programs that existed in the geographic location near where we, where I was working. And I would say, I mean, I, I knew that those programs existed, but I didn't know much about them beyond that. I just knew that they were there, but I would try to make it seem as though I had, you know, uh, more extensive knowledge than I actually did about these programs. That's the kind of stuff I would do frequently. I'll tell you a story about this. One time I, w I had a supervisor, my first supervisor, I was super lucky. My first supervisor who I had when I started out as a young clinician was a really nice dude. And one time I was kind of going through my cases with my supervisor. And one of the patients that I had was getting closer to being discharged from the program that I worked in. And I was saying that I, that it might be a good idea for him to, after he was done with us, to go to this other program and get services from them. And I was saying that, and my supervisor said, why do you think that that would be a good idea for this particular patient? And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I remember the gist of it. And the gist of it was because I've looked into the program and it looks like a really good program. And when I answered that way, my supervisor who like, I, I can't stress this enough. He was a really kind, generous person. I think he knew that I probably didn't know a lot about that program. And so he pushed on this a little bit. He said to me, when you say you looked into it, what does that mean? What did you do? And when he asked me that question, I said, well, you know, I, I, I found them on the internet and I looked into their programs and, you know, kind of read up on it a little bit. And it seems like it's a good program. And, and he said back to me, so let me get this straight. You're telling me that you feel confident referring a patient to this program because you've looked at their webpage. You think that that's looking into them enough to say that they're a good program. 
And in that instant, man, I, I knew I was busted. I knew I'd been caught in a lie. Not a super awful, evil, malicious lie, but a lie. And I got embarrassed. And I was like, uh, well, um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, and, and again, the supervisor who was this nice, kind, generous person said, hey, listen, Neil, chill out here. Like, this is, this is what I'm doing here is, is trying to teach you something. Something that I think is important for somebody like you who's young and inexperienced to learn. And that's that when you're young and you're inexperienced, a lot of times you try to look like you're smarter than you are. And that's just a bad plan. It's not a good idea to do that. It's a really bad idea to do it, in fact. So right now, you know, I think the best thing that you can do is to let's just acknowledge what's happening here. You were trying to, you know, maybe act as if you knew more than you did about something. You brought that to my attention. I'm your supervisor. One of the things that I'm supposed to do is supervise you, teach you. And what I want to do right now is just that. I want to teach you that what you're doing, you know, might seem like a good idea in the moment, but it's actually not a very good idea. So let's just kind of like reset here. Let's go back to where we started. And and let me ask you again, why do you think that this is a good program for this patient? And I, I said, you know, you know what? I actually don't know if it's a good program for this patient, but I think I should look into it and figure out if it is. And he was like, now that's a good answer, right? So the reason I, I'm kind of retelling this anecdote here is to show something to, to you, the person who's listening to this, to show you through my own experiences that a lot of times, you know, we lie because we're trying to pass ourselves off as something that we're not. We lie not because we're evil, but because we just want to keep ourselves safe. And our lies are not, I mean, it, it's just really easy to lie. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make here. When, when I say to somebody, don't lie, a lot of times they might think just don't deliberately and really maliciously say something that is clearly not true. Well, yeah, don't do that. But also be aware of the fact that our own desire for approval, for safety, for security, to have people like us, to have people see us as good at what we do, to have people see us as competent, that that kind of desire can lead to us lying in a way that might not always be labeled as a lie, but it is. Okay. We're all vulnerable to lying for those reasons and in that way. I'm still vulnerable to it now. And I've been doing kind of mental health stuff. I've been a, a clinician for a, a long time. And every now and then, to this day, there will be instances when my own desire to look like I'm smart, to look like I know what I'm doing, end up uh, having me say something which is not totally true. Hopefully I don't do that as much as I used to. I would like to say that I never do it, but that would be dishonest. I'm sure I still do it sometimes because that's, that's what it means to be a person. When we're people and mental health clinicians are people, we're vulnerable to our unconscious desires and we're vulnerable to our unconscious desire to be safe, to be secure and to be looked at uh, by other people in a way 
where they think that we're cool or where they respect us or something like that. So yeah, don't lie. That's not always an obvious thing. Sometimes we lie because we're just trying to get through life. So that's my second piece of advice. Do your best to not lie. Let's wrap up this episode of The Gorman Limit. I've got one more piece of advice that I want to dispense on this episode. I actually have lots of other pieces of advice, but I plan to dispense those at some point down the road on a future episode of The Gorman Limit. Now, this last piece of advice is going to sound perhaps a little strange. So I'm going to give it to you, and then I'm going to attempt to explain it a little bit. The piece of advice is this. If you don't like kids, don't open a daycare. Do you see what I mean? It's a little weird, isn't it? It's kind of a strange piece of advice to put into this episode. Let me explain what I mean by this piece of advice. In a lot of the classes that I teach, people who, when they graduate, want to go into doing some kind of mental health work. They want to be a therapist usually. Not all the time, but usually they want to be a therapist. Sometimes they want to do you work for an agency, be be a case manager, be a policy type person. But everybody wants to, in the classes that I teach, everybody generally wants to go into mental health in some way. And part of the process of becoming, you know, a professional mental health person is doing some internships where you go out and you try to be someplace for a little bit. And when you're there, you you do things and you try to learn from doing those things. One of the things that I do a lot in the classes I teach is I talk to people about what those internship experiences are like. And this doesn't happen, you know, all the time or anything, but it happens some of the time. People will talk about their internship experiences and the people who they're engaging with in their internship experiences. And they seem to be, the people who are telling me the stories, they seem to be kind of upset What are they upset by? They're upset because a lot of the times the individuals who they're working with are hard. They're problematic. They're difficult. They're not healthy people. Uh, You know, the the students who I work with and sometimes the the postgraduates who I end up supervising, they go into places and they work with people who are chronically mentally ill. They work with addicts, with people who have active substance abuse issues. I could go on, but I think you get the point. They work with people who have problems in their lives. They're problematic. If you want to be a mental health person, I can pretty much guarantee you that you're never going to have an experience where a person comes in, you know, to your office or whatever and knocks on your door and comes in and says, hey, you're a mental health person? Check this out. I want to spend time with you and pay you money just so that I can talk to you about how healthy I am and how awesome my life is. That is never going to happen. That's It's just not. Under any circumstance, I can guarantee it. What you are going to have is people coming to you because their lives have become difficult, sometimes even unmanageable for them. 
You're going to have people coming to you because they have problems. And they're not always going to be easy people. Sometimes they're going to be really super ultra difficult people. And so when I hear, you know, people who are mental health people, whether they're my students or my colleagues or just somebody who I happen to come across in the world who also happens to work in mental health in some way, when I meet those people and they, you know, talk about the individuals who they work with, whether that's, you know, individual people or families or communities or whatever, and they talk about them in a way that seems to be like irritated. I, when the mental health person is like, ah, I wish these people weren't so, you know, hard or weren't so difficult, weren't so problematic, uh, I'll oftentimes say to them, if you don't like kids, don't open a daycare. And I mean that. Do you see how these things fit together here? It would be really silly, obviously, for somebody who didn't like kids, who didn't want to be around kids, who didn't want to deal with kids. It'd be really weird for that person to open a daycare. I say that because I also think it would be really weird for somebody who only wants to be around like healthy and well-adjusted people and doesn't want to be around unhealthy people with lots of problems to go into mental health. It just wouldn't make sense. And maybe that seems obvious when I say it. Maybe it seems like kind of a silly thing to put into this podcast of, you know, pieces of advice or whatever. But like I said at the beginning, you know, these are things that, that come up often in my teaching. When I start a semester, students ask me about myself. They ask me about my work. They ask me for advice. And these are three things that come up often. They come up again and again. And now that I've said these things, I'm finding that I don't have anything else that I want to say right now. So I think this is a good time to wrap up this episode of The Gorman Limit. I hope that you'll come back and listen to more episodes in the future. Until then, make glorious mistakes.